you a seat. If you, uh, if you have a Bible, I could invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's page 968 in the Pew Bibles. And let me just really quickly bring you up to speed with where we have reached in this relatively new Sunday morning series. Uh, as a church, we have started listening again to a speech that has been described as a world changer, the Sermon on the Mount, delivered by Jesus Christ, the greatest world changer who ever lived, and spoken to and spoken about a new community of world changers. In other words, us, followers of Jesus, the church. And so far in this sermon, we've discovered that Jesus has been focusing on and speaking about who we are. He's been clarifying and emphasizing our identity as this new community of the king. And to summarize the past three weeks, uh, we've recognized and highlighted four aspects of our identity. And, And here are the four aspects we've looked at. To start with, we are the called. As just like those first disciples, we listen, we embrace, and we respond to the gracious, costly, transforming call of the kingdom. We are the called. Secondly, we are the blessed as we align ourselves with the merciful, the pure in heart, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the peacemakers. And so we live this countercultural, upside down, God blessed life. We are the blessed. And then last week, we looked at our identity as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we are a preserving presence and a visible witness in this world. In every sphere of influence that we inhabit, we should be a preserving presence, a visible witness. That, that is Louise's heart's desire. She shared that with us this morning. That in that particular sphere of influence that she inhabits, Strand Millis College spends a lot of her waking hours It's her desire to be a preserving presence and a visible witness. And that took us up to Matthew 5, verse 16. But then having teased out who we are, Jesus then speaks into a controversy. He speaks into the controversy that has evidently been building and simmering about who he is. And so in verse 17, Jesus appears to address certain implicit questions about his legitimacy and about his identity. We're now moved on from who we are to who Jesus is. Now, and I kind of need to take a deep breath because our text for this morning is it's just four verses. Matthew 5, 17, 18, 19, and 20. But to say there's a lot in here would be an understatement. Someone has said that reading these particular verses and coming to terms with them is like trying to take a drink from a discharged fire hydrant. In other words, overwhelming. And so there is going to be a sense of this is just going to be overwhelming this morning. And I'll be really honest, I feel completely overwhelmed by this text. Have done all week and do as I stand here this morning, feel slightly overwhelmed. And so in attempting to explain these four verses in in one sermon, I mean, it's sheer madness. And therefore, here's the disclaimer right up front. Not that this is going to be rubbish, but 
I am, I, well, maybe it is actually. <laughs> I am not going to say all that needs to be said about these four verses. But hopefully, I'm going to say some things that will make a little sense of these phrases and their implications. And so this morning, the spotlight shifts from who we are to who Jesus is. And then in light of who Jesus is, we can truly be who we are meant to be. Because that's the way it works. As we discover who Jesus is, in light of that, we then find out who we are meant to be. So let's read these verses together. And uh, we haven't done it for a while, so let's stand for the public reading of God's word. Matthew 5, starting verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will, be, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Grab a seat. So what we need to do is we can need to press rewind, okay? Uh, Jesus was born about 30 years earlier than this, and he was born in relative obscurity. His birth certainly caught the imagination of some people, and a number of the events surrounding his arrival on planet Earth were intriguing. But then Jesus is just there for 30 years, just there. Luke gives us one insight into his life as a 12-year-old, but otherwise, Jesus just gets on with life in Nazareth. Doesn't attract much, in fact, if any, attention. 30 years. Then all of a sudden, he gets baptized, and his profile goes through the roof. All eyes are on him, suddenly. Everyone begins to sit up and take notice for a whole variety of reasons. Some fascinated by him, some incredibly suspicious of him. Because after a 40-day desert retreat, Jesus returns to the public arena and he issues a call and he makes an announcement. And here it is. We've looked at this before. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, there's the call, here's the announcement. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now that kind of talk grabbed attention. Who is this? What's he up to? Could this be the one that so many of us have been expecting? Could this be the Messiah? Where is he fit? What's his connection with the past? Does he believe our scriptures is what many would have been asking. Does he recognize Moses? Is this a prophet? Those were, it seems, the kind of questions rattling around some heads. There were definitely rumors of revolution. And so some people were convinced that this Jesus, whoever he was, was starting something new. 
something unorthodox, something that was actually going to bring him into direct conflict with the law and the prophets. And then Jesus stands up, or rather he sits down and he begins to teach. And he launches into the Sermon on the Mount and and he begins talking about this new community that he's calling into being, the blessed, the salt, the light. And even as he speaks like this, a number of people that were listening would have made certain connections. Isaiah referred to the fact that God's people would be a light to the Gentiles. They would be a light to the nation. So immediately people are saying, this sounds familiar. But there were still big questions. And so here, verse 17, Jesus speaks into the controversy. And he comes out with a bunch of declarations that would have sent heads spinning. And it's kind of hard, as it often is, for us to appreciate just how shocking these bold statements were. And how they sounded the first time round. Do not think, says Jesus, which implies that some people did think this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now we need to stop there because... That was a huge statement in itself. Jesus isn't trying to delete, to destroy, or to nullify the story so far. Jesus isn't attempting to set aside God's former revelation with his announcement that the kingdom of heaven is arriving. Jesus isn't ripping anything up and starting again. Jesus is not here to pull the past to pieces. Despite some people's reservations and even some people's hopes. And that in itself, that in itself, that realigning of faulty thinking that was clearly around. Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. That was a huge statement in itself. But what he says next is the big headline. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, before we we explore the word fulfill and and what that meant, let's clarify exactly what was being fulfilled and not abolished, i.e., the law and the prophets. Now, whenever you come across that term, it is, if you like, a shorthand way of referring to the entire Jewish scriptures. the the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, 12 times the New Testament refers to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. We'll we'll look at a couple of examples of that in a moment. So Jesus is not dismissing anything of the story so far. He's not modifying it. He's not adding to it. This is about continuity and completion. That's so critical that we get that. This is about continuity and completion. There is a fundamental shift taking place. A sea change is happening. A new day has dawned. That is obvious. But if anybody thought Jesus had come to ditch all that had gone before, they were sadly mistaken. Instead, in his own words, he's come to not abolish it. Fulfill it. Fulfill them the law and the prophets, the story so far. Jesus hasn't come to destroy the scriptures. He's come to fulfill them. 
Now, how his original audience, the disciples in the crowd listening, how they processed or understood that is anybody's guess. There's, there's no break in the text for questions and answers. Jesus just keeps on speaking. But before we move on with, with what is here in Matthew 5, let, let me highlight, as I said, a couple of other similar and even more direct statements than this one in, in verse 17 that hopefully for us clarifies what did Jesus mean. So, if, again, if you have a, a Bible, if you flick over to Luke 24, page 1061, we, we break into the big story where Jesus has come back to life after being killed three days earlier. And he's on a road trip to a small village called Emmaus. And Jesus joins two disillusioned uh, individuals who are lamenting recent events. And they're struggling to come to terms with rumors of resurrection. Now, initially, neither of these two friends recognize Jesus. He's just a stranger who's joined them on this road trip. But as they walk along, we read this, verses 25 to 27. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then here's the bit. And beginning with Moses or the law and all the prophets... Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jump down to verse 44. This time Jesus is not just speaking to two individuals. He's speaking to a whole group of disciples. And here's what he says this time. These words which are spoken to you while I'm still with you, that all, get this, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus is right at the heart of God's story. Right at the heart, front and center. He is the fulfillment of it all. And everything that the Old Testament intended to communicate about God's will and hopes and future for humanity finds its fullest meaning in Jesus. And so here in Matthew 5, relatively near the start of his world-changing speech, Jesus challenges any perception that he is dismantling God's word. Although it's probably fair to say that his claim to be a fulfillment of it didn't satisfy everyone, and still doesn't. Still doesn't. So let's get back to our text. So there's about 15 minutes on one verse. Verse 18 Jesus continues here to make the point that he hasn't come to invalidate the law, but to fulfill it. Nothing is going anywhere, so to speak. Not an iota or a dot, he says. Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will disappear until everything, all, is accomplished. Or until all things have come to pass. So question, when is that? When? When is that? Well, different people have got different takes on this particular time frame. The most widely held view suggests that it means until what it looks forward to arrives. And what does it all look forward to? Jesus and his fulfillment 
of it. I hope that kind of makes sense. In other words, or, or let me put it like this, and I, I realize that this is quite, in a sense, no sharing this with Brian before the service. I recognize that this is quite kind of technical or meaty material this morning. There's not a huge amount of, in a sense, earthy, practical, go out and do it stuff this morning. This, this is pretty technical. It is like drinking from that fire hydrant. The law, let me put it like this, the law remains valid, but only in terms of Jesus' fulfillment of it. The law remains valid, but only in terms of Jesus' fulfillment of it. It remains valid until it reaches its intended culmination, which it was now doing in Jesus, in his ministry, in his teaching, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. But that is rushing way ahead. But that's what it means here. And here's the critical point for us. Accepting and recognizing that Jesus came to fulfill it enables us, everyone, to experience grace, find forgiveness, and discover hope. Recognizing that Jesus came to fulfill this enables all of us to experience grace, forgiveness, and hope. Now, in, in some ways, I'd love to press the pause button for a moment and mention something that, that kind of is a bit of a tangent, I realize, but... People often question and query whenever you raise these issues, this stuff. And it relates specifically to the Old Testament laws. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but, but I do think it's worth mentioning. Can we ignore most of them? Or should we still keep some of them? Hey? Can we ignore most of them? Should we still keep some of them? Let's close in prayer. <laughs> there, there appear to be three now, big stuff I'm trying to capture in. there appear to be three different categories of law in the Old Testament three different categories you have ceremonial law civil laws moral laws ceremonial laws were given to the people of Israel as a means of guiding their worship of God they included animal sacrifices circumcision and food regulations etc Right? These laws served a temporary purpose. And so we no longer have to ceremonially purify ourselves to gain access into God's immediate presence. We don't need to do that anymore. God has done that for us in Jesus. So you can enjoy your pulled pork wrap from the international Christmas market and you can wear clothes of mixed fibers. It's okay. All right? Just in case anybody was worried about that. It's okay. Market is now open from yesterday. You can have a pulled pork ramp. Civil laws. Civil laws were given by God to kind of guide the chosen nation of Israel's daily living, political affairs, and judicial systems. But again, no longer apply because the people of God are not determined by their ethnicity or geographical location. But rather... They're identified through faith in Jesus. Today, God's people assemble and gather as a church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then there's the moral laws. Ten commandments. Which don't provide salvation if we keep them. But they do direct and enable us to know how to live a God-pleasing, God-honoring life 
And so this law, these laws, many of those laws are still applicable. They're still very much in force because they teach us and say so much about what it means to love your neighbor, care for the poor, keep God right at the center of your life and society's life, moral laws. Okay, pause button released. Back to our text, questions afterwards. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But as Jesus keeps teasing this out for now, and, and as I say, this is just for now, I, I, can't, I can't go from Matthew 5, the Sermon on Mount 17, and deal with the rest of the story this morning and how Jesus fulfilled all of these laws. Can't. It's impossible. But as he t- continues to teach, he stresses the importance here of obedience in his kingdom community. Look at verse 19, particularly the second bit of it. Because what Jesus says here, and it's It's fascinating. Given all that was said, Jesus says, people who practice and teach these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Flick over to the end of Matthew chapter 7, the end of this Sermon on the Mount, this world-changing speech. And we're going to get here by about March 2014, okay? But at the very end, he highlights, Jesus highlights the need to practice what he preaches so here's what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and yet does what? Doesn't just hear them. Doesn't just believe them. But puts them into practices. What? Like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. Please get this. Everyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice. Is like the wise man. Obedience in the kingdom is essential. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. He completes it. He completes us. And therefore, we live in the kingdom as kingdom dwellers, kingdom seekers, and we should now be obedient to the king. We practice what Jesus preaches. We submit to his teaching, which is why we're spending four months listening again to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus then finishes this this little section of teaching with a rather startling comment that at face value seems more than a little bizarre, verse 20. And I saw some of you react to this in a sense and smile at me just as we we, we read this and as I asked you to sit down. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How do you get your head around that? Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of law, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were the epitome of ethical righteousness. How could anyone ever dream of surpassing them, given their hardcore commitment to doing everything by the book, their, their strict adherence to every single command and prohibition that was reckoned by the rabbis and their interpretation of it. And there were like 600 plus of these things. Like if, what hope is there for anyone else? Is Jesus actually endorsing the Pharisees' external pursuit of purity and salvation on the basis of doing everything right? Is that what this is about? Or is he calling his disciples... Is he calling this new community 
this new kingdom community to a different kind and quality of righteousness as opposed to an increased quantity. Is this about a different kind and quality as opposed to an increased quantity? You see, the Pharisees and the, and, and the teachers of the law, they, they peddled and promoted this idea that righteousness worked from the outside in. Whereas Jesus arrived on the scene declaring that kingdom righteousness operates from the inside out. It's a heart issue. And therefore, for example, Jesus has already made it clear that it was the pure in heart who lived the God-blessed life. Beatitude number six. And in the not-too-distant future, Jesus is going to hammer home this point in an extremely direct manner whenever he says to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees. And this is what he says, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, and this was harsh, on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, here, this is what Jesus said, in the same way, on the outside, you appear as people, you appear to people as righteous, sorted, together, holy, perfect, better than, but on the inside, says Jesus, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And so in Matthew 5, Jesus is marking their card. He's making the point that if you want to be an authentic kingdom dweller, you need an alternative, an altogether alternative kind of righteousness. The inside out, not outside in thing. An inner righteousness that begins with a transformation of the heart, which is not something any of us can do. That's a God thing. God changes hearts, not us. And in some ways... This is not a totally radical idea or a brand new principle. God's people always knew, did they not, although they didn't always get it, that external acts of righteousness could never entirely or adequately deal with the reality of sin and guilt in their lives. There needed to be, did God's people not always know this, that there needed to be an inside-out operation? And so, for example, whenever David messed up and slept with Bathsheba and subsequently committed even further sin... He didn't just recognize the need to get his act together and do certain things that kind of ticked particular boxes. David also realized the importance of seeking inner cleansing and renewal. You do not delight God in sacrifice or I bring it to you. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. It's our external stuff. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. And not long after this, David did offer sacrifices, did bring offerings, did receive God's favor, but only on the basis of having paid attention to the deep places of his heart. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, they had flipped this and seemed to work on the assumption that, listen, see if you work hard enough to clean yourself up on the outside, well, then the inside wasn't really that big a deal. 
And so they spent endless hours doing specific things, adding to the list of things to do that made them look good, that made them look far better than anyone else. And therefore, they completely and tragically missed the point. Because their hearts were miles from God. They had domesticated the law, brought it down to their level, forgot its purpose. Which Jesus would subsequently sum up as what? Purpose of the law. Here's what it's all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. I've been saying it on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings over the last few weeks. And I'm probably going to continue to say it a lot more. And so what Jesus does next, and this is me done, what Jesus does next, and we'll begin this journey next week, is he then begins to explain and describe a deeper and far more radical obedient lifestyle and kingdom ethic. So from verses 21 to 48, he addresses the condition of our hearts, our attitudes, our thought life, our intentions. And so Jesus begins to talk about anger and lust. This is where it gets really up close and personal. Heart issues, attitude issues, thought life, intentions. Don't want to talk about anger. We're going to talk about lust. We're going to talk about your word being your word. We're going to talk about retaliation. How you react when people react badly against you. Do you fight back? Do you lash out? Let's talk about your heart. That's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. So to sum it all up this morning, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the ultimate game changer. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to continue God's bigger story. He came to change human lives from the inside out. And therefore, as we listen, as we embrace, as we follow him, we enter the kingdom and we live the God-blessed life as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. May God help us. Let's stand together as we close. I will worship with all of my heart. I'll praise you with all of my strength. Chorus says, I'll give you all my worship, give you all my praise. This is a song that kind of needs to be sung from the heart rather than just from the lips. So let's stand together and sing as we close.